1: wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech.
2: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line. It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's Wonder, made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder.
3: Okay, so uh, I think that new barbecue place is just down the road up here.
2: I have a message I can't seem to get to it. I can't, shoot. I What's wrong? I can't get my stupid smartphone to work. It's not a smartphone. It's a dumb phone. Wait a
3: minute. Don't jiggle it, Molly. Okay. Well, can you take a look at it, Seth? They're not while I'm driving, Molly. That's kind of dangerous. And frankly, it wouldn't matter anyhow. Look at that thing. its I mean, it's all smooth around the edges. You don't see any screws there, no rivets, no way to pop it open. And frankly, even if you could pop it open, you wouldn't be able to do anything with what's inside. It's just integrated circuits, and you don't know what they are or what they're doing. Frankly, if they didn't want to make it look so nifty, they would have put a big sticker on it saying, no user serviceable parts within.
2: Hey, is that your
3: Yeah, yeah, that's my way. I'm gonna mute it. Anyway. What I'm saying is you're probably going to have to take that smartphone in to have it repaired. And most likely, they're just going to replace it anyhow. Probably with a refurbished unit or who knows what they're going to do.
2: And what's worse, you know what's worse? I, I find that people don't even care what's in Seth, it. Seth, maybe of- we can wait for your rant until we pull over, you know, because eyes on the road and all of that. No, I'm just saying
3: that no one knows how to fix things anymore. And, and furthermore, nobody makes things anymore. I'm not
2: sure that that's even true. Watch out for the truck ahead. Are those chickens?
3: Look, in my day, you know, you have had your transistor radio, and suppose it goes on the fritz. Well, what you would do is you'd unscrew the back, and you would find the loose wire or the leaky capacitor, and you'd solder in a replacement, you would close it up, and you'd be back in action.
2: You know, it's true. I do remember that my father uh, built us a large raft out of long pieces of wood and styrofoam, and it lasted for years and years. And all the bookcases in the house he built, my mom painted them. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying.
3: And and by the way, those, those are chickens. Look
2: around, we're here
3: in the Silicon Valley. Look at all those electronic stores. And where is this stuff made? Sure, some of it is, well, some of it was, made right here, world-changing devices, really. I mean, uh, the first personal computers, or, or hard drives, or even the first smartphone, all made here. But now, most products are assembled in countries you have difficulty pronouncing. Like China? Well, whatever. But in the big scheme of things, we aren't really builders anymore. And and another thing is that, you know, what's that?
2: Okay, that sounds like a flat tire. Shoot, can you, can you fix it?
3: Well, I don't know. I think I took all the tools out of the trunk. And honestly, I haven't had to do this in years.
2: Okay, pull over over here then. Okay, hang on. Open this. All right, well, any idea where we are? Yes, actually, I do have an idea where we
3: are. Well, that's good. I kind of lost track there.
2: And I think I know who can help us. Are you willing to go over there? Oh, well, that
3: looks like it might be a good idea, actually. I'm Seth Shostak.
2: I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, where we step back and get out of our cars to give you the wide-angle view on science and technology. In this hour, the materials that make up our world and who exactly is doing the making. Does anyone build anything anymore? It's what do you make of it? And let's see what we make of this.
3: Well, we're entering the grounds now. The annual Maker Fair, the Maker Fair of the Bay Area, here in San Mateo. And uh, th- these are people who actually make stuff. They don't just use it or buy it or <laughs> stuff like that. I mean, they 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 take bits of plastic, metal. They take electronics. They take little computer parts, and they build stuff. Stuff that does you know something neat or something useful or or maybe even both. So maybe they can fix a tire.
2: And uh, the Maker Fair is sponsored by Maker Media, the publishers of Make magazine. Okay, well, we're entering the hall indeed. There are a lot of people here uh, crowded around other people who are building things and demonstrating them.
3: Uh, There's robots over there, you know, they're nodding at me. Well, maybe not at me. And I really love the T-shirts, you know, they're all very geeky. Like, it worked when I compiled it.
2: (laughs) Okay, uh, let's take a look around. Okay, it looks like these guys are making
1: shoes with 3D printers.
3: Yeah, I guess the big advantage might be that uh, it's guaranteed to fit if they measure you first.
1: My name is Lucy Beard and I'm the founder of Feats. Okay,
3: Lucy, what's the idea? Why make shoes with a 3D printer? Are you trying to put the uh, shoemakers out of work?
1: No, we're going to partner with the shoemakers. We are now bringing the cobbler into the digital age. If you go to a shoe store, you have to try on 10 different pairs of shoes to try and find a pair that works because shoes are mass manufactured. They're made in these 17 preset sizes. And we're saying, well, why is that the case? Because I'm not one of 17 people, I'm unique
3: but first you have to measure people's feet or else they have to have that data somewhere where you can get it. How do you do that?
1: So there are so much wonderful technology solutions out there. You can take photos of your feet and you can stitch those together in the cloud and create a 3D model where you get accurate measurements of people's feet. Can you explain how a 3D printer works or even what a 3D printer is? Absolutely, a 3D printer is like the home printer that you have at home where it prints something like a letter that you're sending to somebody and then it just goes up one level and prints it in the Z dimension, so in the third dimension. And it keeps going up, 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 up. And so you create the printer you have at home in 3D.
3: But but are you saying that you make your own shoes Mm -hmm. at home? I mean, where does your company Feats come into it? What do you guys do?
1: We would love to say that you can print them at home. Technology is not yet at that stage. In 10 years time, it's going to be like the microwave. You press a button and you have your meal in five minutes. You're going to have your shoes in five minutes. But we're not there with technology. What we're doing is now filling that gap. Instead of going to that shoe store, you're going to go online. You're going to take those photos of your feet. You're going to design the shoe with the color options and the styles that you want, and then we make them for you and ship them to you within seven days.
2: So if you could just describe what the machine is doing right here. It
1: looks like the sole of a shoe is being printed right now. So right now we're actually making the upper of a shoe. It's a beautiful white pattern. It's got lattice structures in there with holes in there. It's also just going up and up and up, so it's creating that arch support over the bridge of your foot.
3: It's a white material, and it kind of looks like sort of a flexible kind of styrofoam to me, actually. I assume it's some sort of melted plastic that solidifies into something that, I don't know, has the texture of light cheesecake or something.
1: (laughs) Now you're making me hungry. This is a polyurethane. It's called TPE. It's a material that's like a plasticized rubber. You push it through like a little nozzle. Think of like the cake icers that you decorate your cake with. That's what you're doing with 3D printing. But you're heating it up so it melts and then you lay it down in the little patterns that you want so that it creates a pattern like a shoe.
3: Now do you have to make various parts and then glue them together?
1: Right now we're showing some of those components where you can do that. Like traditional shoe making which has six 65 different parts, but we're building shoes, so it's all printed in one piece. And what kind of materials can a 3D printer work with? So material science and 3D printing is really key. You can get 3D printed houses made out of concrete. You can get organs made out of biodegradable materials. We're focused on plastics, nylons, and rubbers.
3: I, I hope they don't make an organ for me that's biodegradable, I gotta say. <laughs> well, but this is terrific, and I noticed the shoes you're wearing look as if you may have made them.
1: That's exactly right. So I scanned in my feet using Photogrammetry with a couple photos. They took about 24 hours to print, and then we put them on my feet, and I've been wearing them for about three weeks now. We're not ready to launch until the end of this year, but are actively looking for beta testers to give us tons of feedback. And you sign up by going to feats.co. And that's feats with a Z. That's correct. Z stands for the 3D printing.
3: And you want feedback.
1: <laughs> yes. And, and finally, are you able to fix a flat tire
2: if you had to? I mean, people here, they can do anything, right? Could you fix a flat tire? I cannot fix
1: a flat tire. I can call AAA. Could you print us a, another tire? It can be done. I would rather get you the shoes to run to get the tire. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much.
4: I'm Mark Miodovnik. I'm a material scientist and director of the Institute of Making. University College London.
3: Mark, we've just heard from a woman who's making shoes with a 3D printer. She can customize them that way. She's using polyurethane. She called it TPE. It's kind of plasticized rubber. I don't know. Uh, But she's doing it by pushing it through kind of a cake nozzle on a 3D printer. Does 3D printing represent a substantive change in how we use plastic?
4: It's hard to tell at this point. It really is hard to tell with plastic because when you make things out of plastic – you're competing with other ways of making things out of plastic, and these are the things that are called injection molding machines, and they make things much cheaper than you can make them on a 3D printer. I know, I know, 3D printers, are, people can buy them for two or three hundred dollars and make them at home, but if you really work out the cost of what you're making on those, they're quite expensive compared to industrial processes. Nevertheless, its big claim to fame is that it, this is really the first tool at home that you can play about with this material, and I think that's a really great step forward. And I think it's going to lead to a lot of innovation. Plastic has
3: become, I don't know, almost a term of derision when it comes to materials. I mean, there are a lot of things that people don't like about plastic because, uh, you know, it piles up in landfills. It's toxic if you burn it, whatever, that sort of thing. But you celebrate plastic. Why do you find plastic so interesting?
4: Well... The first thing about plastic that is very interesting is that without plastic, you wouldn't have cinema. You wouldn't have film. Because film is a film of plastic. That's where the word comes from. And when people were looking to have a moving image in the you know, the late 19th century, early 20th century, they needed something that wasn't glass. They needed something transparent to make a photograph on, which could be rolled through a projector. And, and it's plastic. It's called celluloid. <laughs> and so once you think, oh, my gosh, so plastic really is this thing that brought us cinema it brought us the moving pictures i think you start to feel differently about it and and the other thing about plastic i think that people perhaps sort of ignore is that most people walk around on it i mean they're walking around on rubber soles or or foam soles pretty much if you get into any car or bus or plane you're sitting on foamed plastic and it is very comfortable so the comfy stuff in our lives the visual culture of our lives, this is all due to plastic. You write about a lot of different materials in your book. Uh, Steel,
3: steel, steel's all around us. Literally, it's all around me here. You got interested in steel after a scary incident in the London tube, in the underground. What happened to you?
4: Yeah, I got stabbed. Um, I was sort of approached by um, a bloke and he wanted my money and, and I was too young to be sensible and just give it to him. Anyway, I pushed past him and went onto the tube. But as I was getting onto it, he just slashed my back with what turned out to be just a razor blade, actually. But it inflicted some pretty bad damage on me. And it just astounded me that something could be that powerful and how something could be that sharp. How, you know, where does sharpness come from? Those things, those questions ended up drawing me into material science.
3: Well, the way it could be sharp is by being very, very strong as a material, able to hold an edge. What is it about steel that gives it that strength
4: yeah so all metals it turns out all metals are made of crystals billions and billions of crystals and actually in those crystals unlike the ones that people wear on their on their hands as a form of jewelry those crystals can move in real time they can change shape and they do that because they have little machines inside them called dislocations and they have billions of those and so i suddenly realized oh my god you've got this material that has an inner life and it's it's not infinitely complicated, but it is extremely intricate, almost as intricate as you know, as a handmade watch. And so once you get into the interior of metals and indeed any material, you realize that there's as much detail going on in there as, as if you were to zoom into your hand and see the cells and see the tissues and see all the different processes going on inside your hand. That's going on inside metal and that's going on inside all materials. Making
3: good steel was, for a very long time, an art, not a science. It was an art. We didn't have the equipment that showed you these crystals you're talking about. I mean, this process for making a sword was far more complex than making any, I don't know, gourmet dish in a French restaurant. I mean, this was a long, complicated process, and it was passed down from father to son, that kind of thing. Today, it's all, you know, if you will, it's all science. It's all follow the prescription, use these machines, whatever. Do you think we've lost something in trading in the art for the science when it comes to materials? Or is that romanticizing, perhaps?
4: I think it is romanticizing. You, If you go to a steel mill, people still have that knowledge, and they have it on a much bigger scale, right? So you, you will see them controlling enormous billets, you know, 100 tons worth of steel, and it's not just just about shape. It's They're controlling the inner structure of that material. That's the whole game. The Japanese knew it. The Damascans knew it and it's really part of who we are as humans if you go way 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 back right the ages of civilization are named after materials you have the stone age right if you don't get out of the stone age if you don't work out that stones can be turned into metals then you're essentially an animal you just you you just never make it out you're not human
3: it's being able to use the raw materials around us and to shape them the way we want. You know, you you mentioned these various ages. If you couldn't get out of the Stone Age, well, you were just positively Stone Age. But, you know, I, I look around here, all the houses that are being built near where I live, they're all made out of trees. They're made out of wood. I, You know, I am nonplussed by this. We're still building stuff out of trees. Why the heck is that?
4: Well, the thing is you can't make things out of trees unless you have metal tools, and that's the thing is that actually, even though you look around, as you say, a wooden house, go and see who's making it and see what they've got in their hands, and you'll find they've got steel. And actually, it turns out the wood is a fantastic material for building houses and not a bad one indeed In fact, you know, a modern version of it's called carbon fiber, and everyone loves that. They make you know racing cars and bikes and airplanes out of it.
3: If I could name one material in your book that uh, I think is maybe the hero, It's probably concrete. I mean, for lots of reasons, we've been using concrete. Well, the Romans were using concrete, right? We're still using concrete. Uh, Why is concrete, you know, such a hero to you? Most people think of concrete. Man, that's pretty dull and pretty
4: ugly. Well, the thing about concrete is 50% of everything that gets made in the world is made of concrete. So, A, that's, that's quite an impressive fact. And the other thing about concrete is that it's the perfect material for our modern lives. And the Romans knew this because the Romans were trying to build a society quite like what we have now. I mean, they were trying to build a society with ports and roads and infrastructure and bathhouses and all these things. And they knew that actually building out stone or brick or in fact was limiting. They w- They had bigger ambitions than that. And if you want to build an airport, right, the side of that with runways that are a mile long you need concrete it's an artificial stone you pour it in it becomes stone like but you don't have to make flat things you can make any shape you want you pour them into existence this is liquid stone one of the problems with concrete at least reinforced concrete which is used for
3: you know the local freeway overpass and all the buildings where they have steel inside is that the concrete cracks and then the water can get in and rust the steel there's talk of self-healing concrete Uh, How do you do that?
4: It's not just talk, it's reality. I mean, this is concrete which has got bacteria inside which lie dormant. They can lie dormant for 50 years. But if a crack forms, they're exposed to humid air and they wake up and they look around for food. And the concrete makers have put starch into the concrete mix. So they find the starch, they eat the starch, and they poo out calcite, which is a major constituent of concrete. So they eat their way out of the crack And when they get to the edge of the crack, having eaten their way out of it, they then find no more food and they die. And this is is an amazing thing because you can restore 90% of the strength of the concrete this way.
3: Well, finally, Mark, I look around my neighborhood here, and it looks to me like we're still building stuff using the materials that we would have used 50 years ago. I mean, I guess there have been refinements uh, all along the way, but, you know, fundamentally it's the same. But I tend to think of the 21st century as promising to introduce a whole new set of materials we can use because we can finally engineer stuff at a molecular, maybe even an atomic level. Are we really going to see new materials that are going to make us think nostalgically back to the times when you would buy an I-beam made out of steel or or aluminum or something like that?
4: I think we will. What's coming, I mean, I talked about self-healing concrete, but what's coming is that sensors are are going to be started to integrate into the materials of construction so buildings and bridges and tunnels will be able to sense when they're being cracked they're a bit like a nerve system of the human body and also the ability then to heal themselves and so the infrastructure will become more lifelike that a looks after itself b knows it's kind of aging and c may even sense our needs for a new house or a new room and and start to bulge out in that direction and it sounds mad it sounds mad but it's clearly possible nature already does this and we are getting to the point where we understand how to do it well
3: mark miadovnik thanks so very much for joining us today pleasure
2: Mark Miodovnik is a material scientist, and he's the director of the Institute of Making at University College London. He's the author of Stuff Matters, exploring the marvelous materials that shape our man-made world.
3: Okay, so new materials with nervous systems, and, and sure, people are using 3D printers, but honestly, I think tinkerers are an endangered species and and it seems that nobody can fix a tire anymore.
2: Well, there's a lot more at the Maker Faire to explore, so you can decide then. It's What Do You Make of It? from Big Picture Science.
5: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window your work can take you all over the place like texas you've never been but it's going to be great because you're staying at la quinta by wyndham their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead and after you can unwind using their free high-speed wi-fi tonight la quinta tomorrow you shine book your stay today at lq.com
3: so it kind of sounds as if there's some pretty sophisticated materials coming down the pike
2: Well, smart materials, and people may learn how to tinker with them, too. And at the very least, the materials will change what kind of things are being made.
3: But meanwhile, we're continuing to use this same basic materials for those raw materials for building stuff that our ancestors did. I mean, we're making buildings out of stone and iron and trees. And, but I will say that the mass production of those materials for the building trade and industry does have an upside. I mean, there's more of this stuff around for the tinkerers to tinker with, if, if, if they ever wanted to do that. In, in my day, I would have to scrounge for pieces of aluminum so I could punch some holes in them and mount some tubes and, you know, build a walkie-talkie or whatever.
2: Where would you get the aluminum?
3: I don't even remember where I got it. I mean, sometimes you just go to a scrap heap, you know. They had such things. You could buy 39 cents a pound. You could buy old stuff, and some of that was valuable.
2: Why didn't you open up the drawer in your kitchen and pull out the tinfoil?
3: Well, to become a tinfoil, aluminum foil, really. I mean, it's too thin to to use for building things. Look, aluminum was still very expensive. I mean, and it wasn't in very many products at that point. And frankly, my grandparents would have been astounded by the thought that you would use aluminum today, you know, for soda cans or to wrap up old meatloaf.
2: Would they also have been astounded that we'd use pieces of reusable plastic to stick the meatloaf in? Uh,
3: they wouldn't have known about reusable plastic.
2: Well, Seth, before you give up on whether anyone makes anything anymore, let's look around some more at the Maker Fair. Let's go back in. Okay, well we couldn't help but notice the uh, miniature R2-D2 robot here. What's your name and did you make this guy?
5: My name is Steven Nelson, I'm from Team Kiss Robotics, and this is my little buddy made out of a mini Heineken keg. His name is Bear2D2.
2: Is he autonomous or are you controlling him?
5: Currently I'm controlling him with a radio at this event, but he also has an autonomous mode. He uses three sonar sensors to sense distance and an Arduino microcontroller. So he can run around by himself, but it's just way too dangerous with this many humans.
2: And what's an Arduino microcontroller? What does it allow the robot to do?
5: Arduino microcontroller is actually uh, a very small computer on a chip. It allows you to use sensors, switches, turn on motors, send signals down to the electronics that drive his actual drive motors. And it allows me steering and control. You can do a million things with the Arduino.
2: If you're in your basement or in your workshop and you're building a robot, what are the fundamental principles that you need to understand to make something yourself, like a robot?
5: You need to understand things about electricity, uh, electronics, motors, and you get into things like software. Once you get into the software, you have to write the program to read and control all those devices.
4: You've
3: you've got an Arduino in there. That's just a sort of off-the-shelf, miniaturized computer anybody can buy, anybody can program. How hard is it to program that Arduino to get it to do what little R2-D2 here requires?
5: You know, it's really not that hard. There's a whole bunch of examples, and a lot of people have done these things. These particular sensors are very common. They're called ultrasonic or ping sensors. So almost anybody could do this with a fair amount of time and some effort, and everybody should make something because making things is good for the soul.
2: Do you feel like there is a movement back towards making things?
5: Yeah, and I think it's great, you know? And I also believe, like, I share my software and my schematics and all my ideas with everybody because I believe in open source information. And your next project, CP3O? Uh, my next project, actually, is I want to build a tricorder, like in Star Trek. I mean tricorders are those devices that the uh, doctor aboard the Starship Enterprise used.
3: It looked like a cell phone. He just sort of held it above the, the body of somebody who was sick or almost dead
5: and would tell you what was wrong with them. It was a complete diagnosis lab in a
3: handheld format.
2: You think you can make something like that?
5: I've actually already started on it. I have seven sensors working right now and I'm adding more to it. And actually, that's the medical tricorder. There's also engineering tricorders. Like you can walk onto a planet and measure the gases in the atmosphere, the temperatures. Uh, I've actually already done all that. So that part's easy. Now the medical part, Google actually, there's a $10 million prize if you can actually diagnose eight diseases with no contact to to the patient.
2: Okay, Stephen, finally. Are you able to fix a flat tire?
5: Absolutely. I'm an automotive and diesel mechanic as well. Listen, can you get away for a few minutes? Oh, no. I'm quite busy.
2: But it's good to know that you're around. All right. Nice to meet you. Thank you for talking to us.
5: Oh, thank you for having me.
2: Let's stand out here for a second. It's a little bit quieter. So, Seth, did you ever make anything like the Beer 2D2 robot?
3: This may surprise you, but when I was 11 years old, a buddy of mine and I were trying to make a robot. Of course, we didn't have the kind of parts that this gentleman did.
2: Like little beer kegs like Stephen had.
3: No, we didn't have those. We just had erector set parts and cardboard and stuff like that. <laughs> but, but we tried to buy a little bit of electronics to give him electric eyes, and, and that, that was very difficult back then. You know, Steven's robot there looks kind of low tech, you know, beer keg and all that, but it's not so low tech. Inside he's got servo motors and he's got electronics so he can remote control it. And he's got I mean, he's got quantum mechanics in there. That's a very sophisticated device. Don't be fooled by the plebeian exterior.
2: But but back when you were a kid, could you have made something like that robot and, and gotten it to move around?
3: Yeah, you know, you could have, but it wouldn't have been very autonomous, it wouldn't have been very smart because you would have needed electronics, you would have needed tubes and you couldn't get a lot of tubes into a robot that size.
2: What kind of tubes?
3: I mean, vacuum tubes, you know, electronic devices.
2: These aren't the tubes that go into vacuum cleaners.
3: Only by accident. No, these are the fundamental part of electronics, vacuum tubes. They're they're just glass bottles with some fiddly little metal parts inside, and it's all in a vacuum. But they allow you to control current. How big are they? Well, they, they, they range in size from about the size of your thumb to the size of a, you know, a tumbler or something like that. And they were absolutely key for building anything, electronic in my day, there were thousands of garage and basement tinkerers who were building everything from, I mean, they were building radios, they were building their own hi-fi, some of them even built their own televisions. The old school inventors and tinkerers here in the Silicon Valley, I'm sure they remember those vacuum tubes very well.
6: Hi, I'm Dan Langford from WavePoint Ventures, which is a venture capital firm in Silicon Valley.
3: Dan can recall the days of tinkering when electronics meant vacuum tubes. He doesn't remember when the tubes were invented. That was the beginning of the last century. But he certainly knows their history.
6: I, too, built many electronic things as a kid with tubes. And tubes were actually a very revolutionary invention because it's the first time that we were able to control large flows of electricity with small signals. And so what uh, a number of inventors worked on in the early part of the 20th century, most notably Lead to Forest, was the concept that if you heated something up, it would emit electrons. And then if you could somehow direct those electrons and modulate them by putting some sort of device, which we call a grid, in between the source of the electrons and the target of the electrons, you could take a large electrical signal and control it with a very small electrical signal. And that really created the opportunity for
3: most of the electronic things we see today. So a so tube works Fundamentally, by uh, just having a little heating element in there somewhere, it's sort of like a light bulb, really. It is a light bulb, and it heats up, the the
6: filament heats up a cathode, which then emits electrons, uh, which go over to an anode, which receives the electrons. And it was known in the 19th century that this could be used to rectify or smooth out AC voltage to become
3: DC voltage.
2: Why is that a key ability, the smoothing out from AC voltage to DC?
3: Well, look, what comes out of the wall, what you buy from the power company, that's alternating current. That's AC. But it's kind of useless for most electronics. What you want is a smooth current, so you have to convert it from AC to DC. But converting AC to DC is actually not so very interesting.
2: Unless you lick your finger and stick it in the socket, then it's interesting.
3: It's interesting for a few seconds, yes. But what you really want to do is amplify. And it was that ability that allowed so much of the development of all these devices people were building.
6: And by 1914, people were starting to build the first tube-type radios. And so very quickly in the 1920s, uh, you began to see tube-type radios.
2: So if you have one of those cathedral radios or a beautiful wooden Art Deco model or anything prior to the 1950s, it's filled with tubes.
3: Yeah, right. That's true. But the problem is that tubes get hot. They They burn out, they're big, and they take a lot of power. So we moved on to solid-state electronics, you know, transistors, no glass bottles in which you boil off electrons and move them through a vacuum. These electrons are all contained in what's called a semiconducting material.
2: why Why is the fact that they're contained in the semiconducting material important.
3: Well, only because now you don't need a filament. You don't need a you know, it's not a light bulb. It doesn't get hot. It takes very little power, and you can make it really small. You could make, even in 1950, you could make a transistor that was the size of a pencil eraser, and that revolutionized the kinds of electronics we could build, transistors. Semiconductor
6: materials are unique because sometimes they conduct and sometimes they don't, hence the name semiconductor. And as the voltage varied on that small contact point, the voltage going through the material varied, and therefore you had exactly the same effect as a triode that uh, Lee DeForest had invented several decades before, except you didn't need to heat anything. It was a lot smaller, used a lot less electricity,
3: and operated at a lower voltage, so if you touched it, you didn't get thrown across the room. (laughs) And today, almost everything is solid state electronics, but I'm, you know, I used to build things with transistors too. You would buy an individual transistor, it would cost you, you know, 30 cents, or whatever it cost you, and, and you could wire it up and build radios or all sorts yeah. of. I mean, there were magazines that gave you all sorts of projects yep. you could.
6: Popular build. electronics. I used to build the projects out of that. Yeah, it was great.
3: Yeah. Likewise. Now, the thing is, today though, if I open up some electronic device and heaven knows I've got plenty of them, you know, all I see are these little <laughs> little building blocks, solid things, which have all these thousands, sometimes millions, of transistors in them. But, you know, I can't get to them anymore. I don't understand what these building blocks are doing. I mean, can one still enjoy building things that are electronic, or is that just something of the past?
6: No, I think you can. Before, we were used to building things with one valve. Now (laughs) we're building things with lots of valves. An interesting statistic, um, Apple recently announced their A7 processor. And that one device, which would be a processor for a smartphone— uh, contains one billion transistors. Good grief. put put another way, you could print sixteen thousand semiconductor devices, transistors or switches, in the space that a period takes up in a printed document.
2: Why would you need sixteen thousand semiconductors anyway?
3: Yeah, it sounds like a lot. But, you know, if you want to build a computer that can work very fast, a large amounts of data, you know, you just need a lot of parts.
2: Well, and he mentioned printing these superconductors, not printing the way that we heard Lucy describe 3D printing.
3: No, it's a kind of lithography, actually. But it's done at a very, very tiny scale. And, you know, it might cost you a billion dollars to build a, a machine that can do that.
2: So does Dan think that people are building their own electronics still?
3: Well, they are, except they've sort of gone upscale a bit. They're, they don't start with individual transistors or something like that. They take something like, a, I don't know, a, a little computer chip, and they build on top of that. And so most of what they're doing, I guess, is uh, building software. So that allows them to, to do kind of sophisticated things, like we heard with that uh, Beer2D2 robot guy.
6: We're seeing more and more where the value, the functionality, is moving to the software layer, if you will. So when people are building things, instead of putting things together physically, which you and I like to do, instead they're sitting there coding and seeing how it works and then changing the code and see if it works a little bit better. And we see that in the uh, Swiss Army knife that we carry with us every day, the smartphone. The smartphone is nothing but a hardware platform with a bunch of apps on it, but the apps do amazing things. You know, I have an app on my phone right now, tracks how many steps I take, and gives me a big ta-da when I get to 10,000 steps in the day. All these things are nothing but software implementations on top of a very standardized and very flexible hardware platform.
3: Dan Langford, thanks so much for uh, talking with us. My pleasure.
2: Dan Langford is Managing Director of WavePoint Technologies. And by the way, there's a photo of a model of the first transistor built in 1947 at Bell Labs. It's actually quite beautiful. And it's on our website, bigpicturescience.org. <music>
3: coming up, so it seems that the future of making things is largely the future of programming.
2: The founder of Science Hack Day remembers one of the most surprising inventions at her event and its even more surprising reincarnation
0: a beard detector, essentially a a device that would detect when he needed to shave, which was this completely ridiculous device. But sitting in the audience was a particle physicist, and when the particle physicist saw this hack demoed, he said to himself, wow, this is actually a genius way for how to detect cosmic rays in a cloud chamber.
3: What do you make of it on Big Picture Science?
2: So as we consider the future of building things, I have one word for you, software.
3: Well, that's right. There may be a change in materials and in the technology, but the tinkerers are still out there, it seems. I mean, just that some of them have moved up the ladder to using more sophisticated parts and, and doing programming. Think of the small computers you can buy now, like, like the Raspberry Pi or the Arduino. They, they fit in the palm of your hand, and they have millions of transistors in them, and more power than a university computer of the 1960s.
2: And that has inspired makers to get organized, and organizers of the makers to get organized, and some of those makers are
0: hackers. I'm Ariel Waldman. I'm the founder of SpaceHack.org and the global instigator of Science Hack Day.
2: You might associate the term hacker with someone who breaks into computers for sinister reasons.
3: The guys and gals who are munching popcorn while they pinch your passwords from the web or rewrite the CIA's website, you know, that kind of thing, nefarious geniuses. Well, half of that description might be correct.
0: A hacker is essentially the concept of someone who modifies things for a purpose that they weren't originally intended for. So people can hack things negatively and do malicious things, or they can hack things for more positive modifications. So really, it's just about mashing up different ideas and different things to create new collaborations and cool stuff in the world. But yes, some people sometimes use it maliciously, but I like to focus on the positive.
3: You organized something called Science Hack Day, and uh, maybe you should just tell me what that is.
0: Science Hack Day is a 48-hour event in which scientists, designers, developers, and all different types of people get together in the same physical space to see what they can rapidly prototype with science in 24 consecutive hours. So you really are working overnight. Some people stay up all night without sleeping. Some people attempt to sleep a little bit. But people are really just uh, trying to see what they can make in a very, very mad rush.
3: What, what do you give them? I mean, you know, they, they, they show up. Do they have to pay money to come into this? And do they have to bring things with them? Do they bring, a, a you know, a, a set of tools, a turret, lathe, a computer? What do they bring? It's
0: a completely free event for anyone to attend. People bring all sorts of things to the event. But... Some people will come up with ideas prior to the event and and know exactly what they want to do, and so they'll bring supplies and everything associated with that. But other people will just show up and have no idea what they want to do and just kind of figure it out over the course of the weekend. It requires mashing up ideas and data and information from multiple different industries. So you might get a particle physicist teaming up with a molecular biologist and a journalist or something to create something amazing.
3: Well... We have to pull back the curtain now. You Give me some examples of the, the sorts of things people have produced on Hack Day.
0: Yeah, uh, my favorite example from a Science Hack Day, which I tell a lot of people about, was someone who wanted to create a beard detector, essentially a, a device that would detect when he needed to shave, which was this completely ridiculous device that, you know, was a USB microscope, and he held it up to his face, and the device would tell him when he needed to shave. And this was completely silly. And when I first saw this demoed, I thought to myself, this wasn't really related to science, but you know, we leave it really open-ended. But sitting in the audience was a particle physicist, and when the particle physicist saw this hack demoed, he said to himself, wow, that's actually a genius way for how to detect cosmic rays in a cloud chamber. And so following Science Hack Day, this particle physicist wrote an entire proposal for how to detect cosmic rays in a cloud chamber using the original code that someone had used to detect if he needed to shave or not.
3: (laughs) The Whisker Rebellion. uh, do, Do most of the things that they create fall in the category of, if you will, sort of playful novelties, or do they make things that might be useful, like, I don't know, adjusting the the, the oxygen supply to their goldfish tank or something <laughs> like that?
0: It, it really ranges. I think you should just make whatever excites you. I mean, you shouldn't worry so much about if it's going to contribute in a meaningful way or not, because you inherently aren't going to see that. And so I think Science Hack Day is really about it being something where you don't need to know a ton about science in order to play with it, experiment with it, ask questions about it, and build cool things with it. So I think the idea of science being something that you can just manipulate, just another fabric that you can work with, is actually what is meaningful.
3: I would have somehow assumed that, uh, you know, the hackers would come in and they would be messing with code that would all be sort of software projects. That
0: happens too. Uh, A hack that was demoed at the Science Hack Day in San Francisco last year was called Satellite Symphony. And what Satellite Symphony did is you could go to a website, enter any location on the earth, and you could then instantly not only see a list of all the satellites that were directly overhead, but you could also hear what those satellites might sound like. So they put sounds to the different satellites based on how far away they were and how fast they were moving. And what was cool about that is when we're at work or when we're at home, we often get a sense of how congested or, or how much traffic there is outside because we're hearing the whizzing of cars going by by our house or by our work. But we don't usually hear that sort of congestion in the skies above us. So Satellite Symphony was this great hack where you could also get a sort of ambient sense of how busy the skies above you were at any given time.
3: What about uh, biohacking? I mean, I'm occasionally told that the next generation of inventors will be young people, In their garages, not building, uh, you know, audio generators the way Dave Packard and Bill Hewlett did. (laughs) But they're in there, you know, making, uh, I don't know, trees that glow in the dark and stuff like that. I mean, I think that's been done. Or using big data in some sense to find correlations between pickle consumption and some disease, who knows what. Uh, What's the promise of hacking at the intersection of big data and biotech, do you think?
0: I think it's yet to be defined. I think it's really interesting watching all these biohacker spaces pop up around the country and around the world. And then we have definitely a a large group of biohackers that come to Science Hack Day every year. You know, they are very much in the beginning stages of just being able to set up these labs and trying to gauge what the interest level of people is. When it comes to data and biohacking, I think there's a lot of work to be done because, Right now, a lot of the data in biotech is very much embedded in these very sort of archaic academic systems, and it's not really easy for an everyday person to parse. And so I think the biohacker movement is trying to see what different parts they can chip away uh, and either build cheaper versions of equipment or being able to make different types of data sets more accessible. So I think it's something where it's hard to say necessarily where it's going to go, but I think that's actually the exciting part.
3: (laughs) You've outlined a lot of ways in which the public can get involved in making things, but one area of uh, science, or maybe it's more exploration, that does not seem accessible is space exploration. And yet you created Space Hack. Can you give me a concrete way in which a non-NASA person, a non-astronaut, whatever, can participate in space
0: exploration? One of the cool projects in terms of building physical things is the University Rover Challenge, open to university students around the world to build the next generation of planetary rovers. And what I find so cool about that is while you probably will need to figure out how to build some things the open-endedness of being able to say what the next generation of rovers should look like and act like is amazing to me we've had so few rovers and so i think a lot of people don't really realize how open it is to say maybe we should have rovers that go across the surface of mars that work more like tumbleweeds or other biomimicry sort of ways so It's a cool project in terms of actually being able to build entirely new ways of doing things and to actually directly influence NASA and other entities to build similar types of things.
3: Well, finally, Ariel, you know, some people say, and maybe I should include myself in this, that today's generation is simply not into building things. They're not hot-rodding cars. Few of them seem to be attracted to amateur radio or woodworking or whatever. But is this really true, or have they just moved on to other ways of building stuff?
0: I think people are still building things, and I think because a number of people are building things online and creating online sort of resources and online hacks, you don't always see the sawdust when someone builds something online. And so I think the meaningful factor and the amount of work that goes into these products are no less than someone who's doing woodworking. The difference is, is that there's no digital sawdust that you can necessarily see, and thus, many people may be drawn to the conclusion that people are simply building less.
3: Ariel Waldman, thanks so much for being with us.
0: Thanks. Ariel Waldman is the
2: founder of SpaceHack.org and the global instigator of Science Hack Day. Okay, well, we're hearing the importance of programming to building novel devices.
3: Yep, and I hope to get my hands on that beard sensor slash cosmic ray detector too. <laughs> but we'll go back to the Maker Fair for one more look around because I want to talk with Saurabh Narain. He's a 12-year-old who's building something kind of interesting.
2: And see if we can find someone to help with our flat tire, or if not, figure out what to do about it.
3: So Rob, you've got a device here that uh, is spinning a Rubik's Cube and picking it up and putting it back down, kind of an intricate robotic device. What does this thing do?
7: Well, this uh, robot here can solve Rubik's Cubes in any orientation in less than 100 seconds and under 30 moves.
3: My goodness, that kind of takes the fun out of it. It can do it in less than two minutes.
7: Yes, it can do it in less than two minutes, one and a half minutes.
3: Okay, what it has is, I mean, it looks like it's made with various Lego parts, but anyhow, it has a turntable that has the cube, spins it around, and then a, a kind of an arm, robotic arm, that grabs part of the cube and then flips it 90 degrees and rotates and flips and so forth. So it's always rotating the layer on the bottom, right?
7: Yeah, it's always rotating the layer on the bottom and flipping the cube 90 degrees.
2: Now, did you build this yourself? Uh, Yes, I built this myself. Tell us a little bit about how you built this, just some basic principles involved. Um, Well, I use Lego Technic pieces, which are plastic
7: pieces with tiny holes in them, and I linked them together with um, servo motors from Lego to form this robot here. And it's all powered by the EV3, uh, which is a a microcontroller like an Arduino, but it controls all the servos and motors inside this robot.
3: Okay, so it's got a lot of servo motors. Servo motors are just motors that, you know, turn things a a fraction of of a rotation and that you can control. But look, the whole trick here is, A, how does your device know what colors are where on the cube? And secondly, how does it decide how to solve it?
7: Actually, there's a color sensor on this robot scanning each little square of the Rubik's Cube. It only has to scan five sides, not the sixth side, because it can just subtract from the nine colors and guess the last side. So it's able to solve it by looking for a file on the EV3 that has the algorithm and solution for for the solving the Rubik's cube. It basically carries out the solution.
2: Is able to solve it. I'm sorry. One more time. Oh, um, so, no, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right.
4: Wait a minute. Wait a
3: minute. So you don't. It's not that you have a library of all possible configurations and it's already got a canned solution. You actually figure it out.
7: Uh, yeah, the solution is um, an algorithm on the EV3. It's able to find out what it is and then carry out the solution. On the,
2: on the motors and turn the Rubik's Cube and solve it, yeah. Was this invention um, born out of necessity? Meaning, were you unable to solve a Rubik's Cube and so you had to build a robot to do it? Uh, yeah, it was actually. So first I couldn't solve one and then I just decided
7: to build a robot that could do it for me, so yeah, yeah.
2: So you're, you're the mother of this innovative young man and how many hours would you say Sarab spends in his room or in the basement working on robots? Uh, one month. One month is all it took you, but but he loves making things himself. Yeah, himself, yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Can, can I ask one other thing of you, Sarab? Do, do you happen to know how to uh, fix a flat tire?
7: No, I do not. I do not know how to fix a flat tire. Do you think when you're old enough to drive, you'll be able to fix a flat tire? Yeah, yeah, I can. Maybe I can fix a flat tire, yeah. Good luck. We love your robot. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much, yeah.
3: I, I just wonder, you know, if we gave him a, a month, do you think he could build a robot that could fix that tire?
7: Maybe I
2: can build a robot that can fix flat
7: tires,
2: yeah. It's encouraging to see people making things with their hands and being innovative.
3: Yeah it is and, and it's a little different in the old days you'd do that with a you know, a, a saw and a screwdriver and stuff like that. Start with very basic stuff like wood who knows what. But they they sort of up the ante here. People take things like, you know, little microprocessors, Arduinos, whatever and they'll take 3D printers and, and they'll do the next step of innovation. And in fact I gotta say You know, makes me want to go get an Arduino or a 3D printer.
2: And it looks like most of the people could fix the tire, although I think we should go with Lucy's suggestion and and maybe just call AAA since no one can get away from this fair.
3: Well, I think I paid up my membership, so let's give them a call. Okay, Okay, and I'm going to get a picture of that fire-belching octopus over there. Although, wait a minute, I've got my GoPro camera here. It's going to be a squid GoPro photo.
2: Okay, I don't know how long you spent working that out. Well, let's
3: head back to the studio as soon as we get this tire fixed. Well, we made it back to the studio. AAA came and fixed the flat tire. We made the barbecue place in time for dinner, if not for lunch.
2: And we met a lot of interesting people along the way. And you can find a list of all the makers we spoke with in this episode on our website, bigpicturescience.org. Also a photo of the giant metallic octopus that is on our Facebook page only he's not, he's not belching fire at the time of this photo, and Seth did not use a GoPro camera to take the shot.
3: Yeah, but that octopus was the centerpiece of the Maker fair kind of a house-sized cephalopod made out of scrap metal belching out fire. But the real stars of the fair were the makers, and they weren't just fair, they were excellent. They have the imagination, they have the technical skill, they have the drive to build new things. They didn't just order them online.
2: And you also got the feeling that anyone could do this with some patience and a few tools. So do you still feel that the era of building things, novel things, is over?
3: Well, apparently it's not. And, you know, it's true people aren't building the sorts of things that I did when I was very young. But on the other hand, the things that I was building were not the things that my parents were building when they were young. So I guess it's, it's in our
2: genes to build things. We just build different things depending on the level of technology. Do you have to go all the way back to the first stone tool to find the first truly novel tool or device that was created?
3: Well, I guess for them, yes, it was the first time anything like that had been (laughs) built, but probably that's not even true.
2: (laughs) Well, thanks to a production team that makes this show possible, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
3: Also support from Google, and Rena Shulsky-David, and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners.
2: Your ear's a bit attuned to what do you make of it. If this episode made your day, listen again, or check out our archive of Big Picture Science episodes on our website, BigPictureScience.org. And while you're there, why not save yourself time in the future and download our Big Picture Science app. It's on iTunes, Android, and Windows 8.
3: And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because it feels more tangible and you built a radio once in your basement, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and if you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion, or especially praise, write us at bigpicturescience at SETI.org.
2: Uh, What is your name?
3: Michael Hathaway.
2: Well, do you think that if people building things with their hands is coming back? I think people are increasingly into
3: being able to to fix it. I think that there's a high threshold, so it'll be usually a small subset of the population. I mean, it's a high, I, I believe it's a high density here throughout the U.S.
2: Well, what I was inspired by is the fact that you didn't flinch at all when that gigantic octopus just exploded in fire.
3: Yeah, I've singed a few hairs, but I've worked past that. you got to ask yourself, you know, when, when some guy decides, I'm going to build a giant fire-belching octopus. I mean, you know, what does his mom say?
0: Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The world is constantly changing and transforming.